we look uh, to the Lord in prayer now, again, not by ritual, but to ask His direction upon our understanding of His Word. Lord, great good has come, we trust, through this time in song. We pray that it will have been true confession, true repentance even, announcement of truth that we believe and hold. Lord, we come to You in need of Your Word. We come with the necessity of understanding it, of growing in its light, of maturing in the light that You give us in this Word. We pray for those who know not the truth of Scripture, who know not Christ as Savior, and pray that You draw them to saving faith. For those of us who know this truth, God, we need Your Spirit. As we have sung to You the triune God, We appeal on the basis of Scripture to the teaching ministry of the Spirit who illumines the Word that He has inspired and points to the Son, to glory in Him, our Savior, our King, who then draws us into Your presence as the only way, truth, and life, the only way to You, our Father. We bow before You and ask that You would do this work for the glory of Your name, building Your church and accomplishing all the good that you desire in this time together today. Through Christ we pray. Amen. There was a young pastor who once served alongside a senior pastor known for his intellectual gifts and his deep wisdom. Yet when this young man sought to tap that wisdom, the senior pastor quite routinely ignored his questions. And if he did answer his question, he would just give a brief Answer. Simplistic answer. Answer the young man could have probably provided himself. But the young man learned that if he came back later with the same question and asked it again, showing some discontent, some, that he wasn't really satisfied with the simple answer, he would often receive some great wisdom, some depth and sufficient answer. And we might imagine a number of reasons why this senior pastor acted that way, why he might have employed such a practice. But I want to just draw from that real story to say, not answering a question did not mean that he had not heard it or understood it. And not answering a question thoroughly did not mean that he had no more to say on the topic. Different scene. Some years ago, a pastor led a large, influential church. There was a college connected and a seminary. One day, a couple of pastors flew across the country to meet privately in his office, and they challenged him with a certain aspect of his very influential ministry that they felt was not connected to biblical truth appropriately. It was a big ask for him to change this direction. There were a lot of implications and a lot of people that might even be hurt. And the men, as they were in that meeting that visited this man, this pastor, they were very unnerved by the fact that they did all the talking. He listened, but he didn't say anything. They left really not sure if he'd heard, if he knew, or what would he do, or what he really even thought about what they said. But in the months that followed, it became clear that he had heard them loud and clear. 
Major painful changes were made and the ministry was realigned to a more biblical approach. So I draw from this story as well that not responding to his solicitors did not mean that he had failed to hear them and it did not mean that he refused to act. He just didn't say anything at the time. Each of us could certainly supply a number of other stories like this. We realize that not every question receives an immediate answer. And not every request is met with an immediate response. We know that in this world as we live out our lives, but how hard this is for us when God is the one who's not answering. When God fails to respond, particularly when we need Him most desperately. Christian, there is a skill to navigating those times in your life. First of all, let's admit it together, they exist. There's times when we are desperately needy of God and seeking His face and He doesn't seem to be there. He doesn't answer. He doesn't respond. Those times exist. Times when God seems deaf to our cries for deliverance. I want to bring that reality together with this. There is a way to respond to that reality. There's a skill, a discipline that is utterly essential for us. And it is very clearly and beautifully demonstrated in the life of Jesus. But here in Psalm 28 by Jesus' typological forefather, King David, the psalmist of Israel, who, among few others, has done a better job of displaying this time and again through various psalms, and we find it here in this psalm particularly. One, of, one such demonstration as we meet David in a rather desperate state of mind. Yet again today, as we've looked at Psalm 26 and 27 and very similar themes. But as we come to Psalm 28, one skill that we find, we're just going to lay out what the text indicates here and draw this together as we close. But uh, here at the head, head we see first of all, verses 1 and 2, that we must learn to pray earnestly and persistently for God's singular aid. Every word in that statement is essential. We see it displayed here in verses 1 through 2. We'll talk through it, but let's notice the text then. Psalm 28, verse 1. This psalm of David begins, To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me. God is our rock. Think not stone that you hold in your hand, but think a ledge of rock, a wall of rock, or a massive boulder an impenetrable, immovable defense against the enemies of our soul. No matter the storm that besets your soul, we must know by faith that God is our rock, He is our defense, and no storm can overwhelm this rock. That's who God is. The God we have sung about here together this morning. But David inserts this troubling directive to God. He says, be not deaf to me. That's kind of bold, isn't it? Say to God, don't be deaf to me. Now, does David literally think God could grow deaf? No, we know that God has no weakness. 
There's no debility here that David is considering. But it's a figure of speech, and it's a perception that is very real in our lives. And David knew this experience. Times when God doesn't seem to be listening. Don't grow deaf to me. He knows that experience, and he prays against it here with boldness. David earnestly pleads against this as he continues. Verse 1, Lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. We see the skill unraveling here, unrolling here before us. And it's beautiful. Let's think about it. If you don't answer my cry for help, I will become like one suffering in the throes of death. May I suggest that few Christians ever get to that point. Far before we get to the point where we believe that we're almost in the throes of death because God not answering, we pop off into some other plan some other way, some other direction. The pit here, synonymous with the realm of the dead, often called Sheol, but it might even be within Sheol, the most horrifying place in that realm. It gets really graphic as he considers falling into the realm of death and even being consigned to the worst possible place there and said, that's about where I'll be. That's the verge that I am on as I think of you not answering my cry. David's love for God is so strong that failing to commune in answered prayer with the Lord threatens David with deep despair. It's an experience we want to touch, be near. My prayer life is so significant to who I am that if God does not hear, that is what brings me to despair. David doubles down on his zealous plea in verse 2 as he says essentially the same thing. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward the most holy sanctuary. What does it take for you to lift your voice in pleas for mercy, to cry out for God's help? I, I think most of us would answer what it takes is a really bad situation. It takes trials I can't solve in my own strength, troubles too big to handle or to ignore. That's the kind of pressure that David is facing here and his response, his skill, his discipline in how to deal with that situation is to lift his hands toward the holy sanctuary. That is pointing to the holy of holies within the tabernacle where the presence of God hovered, he lifts his hands in that direction, saying, I want to be in the presence of God. I need God to answer my cry. This covenant-keeping God whose presence hovered over the Ark of the Covenant is my hope. That's where I run. That's where I go. So let's, let's unroll that a bit. And I think what we see here, it's somewhat subtle on some level, but I think we see here two skills to handle such situations. We'll learn later in the psalm that he's under some intense pressure from enemy attack, whatever that is exactly. And I think maybe in some level it's not given to us that we might better apply it to our own situation with the enemies that we face of whatever form. But at any rate, as he faces this trouble, he goes to God and pleads with Him. And I think we see a couple of truths here. The first I'm going to steal from George Swinock, who said, Determine never to be dumb when God is deaf. 
That's skill number one, and it's a vital skill as we face trouble. Determine never to be dumb, that is, never to be silent when God is deaf. Now, Swinnock knows God cannot be deaf. But he says this provocatively, that we must nurture the skill of persevering prayer. This is what we read about today in Luke 18. This is what we find in Matthew 7 and verse 7, as Jesus says, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. God could relate to us in such a way that just always answers whatever we ask immediately, responds immediately the way that we expect Him to respond. And if that was the God we were worshiping, then we'd carve Him out of wood and put Him on the shelf and tell Him what to do. Any deep person doesn't respond like that. And God doesn't respond that way. So when He doesn't, Not to go to Him in a demanding way, throwing a temper tantrum, but we must learn to continue in prayer even in those dry seasons when it seems that God is hearing nothing and doing nothing. This is God our Father. This is coming to know who our Father is, why He does not answer our prayers for His glory and our ultimate good quickly and immediately, we cannot always know. But the skill that Scripture commends and what we find in history among godly people is to learn this discipline to keep on asking, seeking, and knocking. To continue to seek Him in prayer. Persisting in prayer for God's intervening grace in our lives, in the lives of His people, in the lives of the lost. Continuing on in prayer, as we noticed in the parable today, Luke 18. So we're not to grow bitter. We're not to grow lethargic. We're not to grow withdrawn. We're not to yield to self-pity. But we are to determine to persist in prayer when it seems that God is deaf. That's skill one. Skill two, a little more subtle here, but I think displayed in the text is this. If I could put it this way to parallel the first, determine never to knock on another door when God doesn't answer His. The first is to give up, to stop praying. We need the skill of learning to persist when God doesn't answer immediately. But then secondly, to not go knocking on another door. This is what I mentioned earlier. So often we pull off well before we get to the place of feeling that we're on the verge of death, certainly. But this is why I include the word here, singular aid. That we go to God and to God alone. In verse 2, David raises his hands to God's sanctuary. He doesn't raise his hands to any other sanctuary And in verse 1, if God does not answer, David will come to the verge of death. He'll not knock on another door first. This, I think, is a more severe temptation than we recognize. To pull off and to head off into a different direction, to appeal to a different source, to find an answer in a different place than to find it in our relationship with Him. We embrace Many in this spot, false teaching. We find a book, we find a seminar, we find an answer, we find somebody that's at least answering me on something here. And we can tag into false teaching. We can tag into some type of materialistic diversion to take the pain or the edge away. 
and to find another way. We can turn to idolatries and find our escape there. It's really a danger. And the skill is necessary. Keep on praying, keep on persisting, and refuse to go to another door. This is the evidence of faith. This is the evidence of loyalty. This is the skill that we need to learn. David learned that God was his only deliverer, and he learned then to pray with persistent fervor. There's nowhere else to go. I must gain his ear. Visiting Minnesota from my childhood home of Philadelphia, I remember as a little boy being on some remote road somewhere with my grandfather. We were on vacation as a family and he got the short straw and had to take me along with on his drive somewhere. I don't know why I remember, but I just remember as a little kid because I kept talking to him and he didn't listen. I kept asking him questions and he just didn't. He acted like I don't even know if he knew I was there. It was like he was gone. He had a very gifted mind He was an engineer in his own way and he was always solving problems and he could just get lost and like lose track of the whole world around him and he was concentrating, not very much on the road I remember because he was weaving in and out all over but he was really locked into an idea and he just wasn't hearing little Danny's questions. So I finally squawked loud enough to break his concentration and he humped at me or something, and we went on, but I finally got through. Now that's a, maybe a modern-day illustration of what we see in Luke 18, but we think if there's a, an annoyed grandfather and a really annoying grandson, and he'll break his concentration and listen to his question and try to help him out, how much more will our perfect father hear us? We know He will. There's no limitation with them, with Him. There's no thinking about one thing and not being able to concentrate on another. There's no lack of love should there have been, was there any there at all, I don't know. But there's none of that with our Father. Do you imagine that He will not hear you? That He will not care? That He will not respond? God does not always answer us as speedily as we would like. And in that moment, my grandfather just wouldn't answer me like I wanted him to. I didn't have a choice, but I kept going after him. And he responded. That's a man with limitations. That's a boy with limitations. Our father has no limitations. He'll hear. Keep on praying, keep on knocking at his door and he'll hear. Let's admit though, his ways are above our ways. There's reasons he doesn't answer the way we want him to answer and he has every right to run the universe. And his love for you as his child runs deep. Keep praying. Keep knocking. He's there. David knew this. Now, as he faces his trials, there's a significant shift here at verse 3. And we learn from him that we must learn to stand with God against his opponents. Whatever the trial is, part of the prayers going persistently to God alone as our aid is going to be matched, secondly, by how we relate to those who are God's enemies. Verse 3 
Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil. Psalm 28 is grouped with Psalms 26 and 27. If you're hearing the same common themes of the last two uh, Psalms, you, you should. This, they're, they're very similar in this sense. And here again we encounter the theme of identifying with God against His enemies. In the kingdom of God, under Christ's sovereign rule, you must declare whose side you're on. It's so obvious to us in so many realms of life. Think of one political issue. You've got to choose a side. You cannot support a woman's freedom to terminate the life of her unborn child and fight for that child's right to become a woman. You've got to pick a side. We know this over and again in our lives, and so it is in our relationship with God. We must choose to stand with those who oppose God or to stand with God against such people. There's really no possibility that is other. Specifically here, David pleads that God will not judge him with the wicked, which is a particular concern of the righteous Israelite as God deals with Israel in her rebellion. Don't drag me off with the wicked. Don't take me away into exile, so to speak, with those who work evil with their lives. Continuing verse 3, what do they do? What does he have in mind? They speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. I suspect David was on the receiving end of that. But it's interesting how subtle this is. David certainly distinguishes himself from murderers and adulterers and human traffickers and the like. But the sin he mentions here is far more subtle and far more commonplace. David separates himself from people who are fundamentally self-serving. Here, they're willing to speak kindly to the very people that they're secretly planning to harm. Their relational sweetness is a cover for the bitterness they intend to inflict on others in order to gain some advantage for themselves. They are backstabbing, gossiping hypocrites. And David refuses to identify with them as he aligns himself with God's ways. In fact, he prays, verse 4, give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of His hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. Well, how do you read David here? particularly in light of our culture, I don't think David's being hateful and vindictive. He's being a realist. There are people in this world who reject God and who defy His actions, and as they defy His actions, they line up their own actions to do their own thing in their own way, the work of their hands. The culture in which we live is hypersensitive to injustice and it squawks about injustice all the time. They just don't want to talk about the injustice of owing your life to God's creative power and loving provision and then using that life to oppose God Himself at every turn. That's the injustice they don't want to deal with. They don't see the injustice of God's glorious saving works and then opposing those works with the works of wickedness. David's prayer reveals a genuine belief in the reality that God is the ultimate judge of sinners. And he says, God, I'm with you. 
I stand with you. I stand against this injustice of rebellion against you. He understands that, as the author of Hebrews says, it's appointed unto a man to die once. And after that comes the judgment. And there's a horror here he knows that is coming. He pictures God as a conquering king who tears down the city and doesn't build it again. This was very common in the ancient world, a common image. And you can go to Israel today and see that common image on display as there's some places that are 5 and 6 and 28 and 30 levels of destruction. Because it was very common to come in to destroy a city, turn it into rubble and build a city on top of it. It, the, The message was, this place will never come back. It will never be again. And that horrible image is what David employs here, that this is where the wicked are coming. And at this level, on this side of the cross, we have a bit of a conundrum here. Is this right for us to pray about the judgment of the wicked and plead with God that he would treat us with mercy? So God, these who rebel against you, no mercy. But for me, in my sin... Grant me mercy. Is that injustice? Is that unfair? Is that wrong of us? Praying that God would have mercy on us sinners, but that he would not have mercy on other sinners. I think there's two brief answers to this, and it goes much deeper. But one answer is that the redeemed willingly receive God's forgiveness by faith in his provision the, wicked, the wickedness of the wicked is, in part, the fact that they reject God's forgiveness. So that's going on here when we speak of God judging the godless. But a second answer is what we now know and have sung about today is Jesus' redemptive work. It's His substitutionary death. He has paid the full punishment of sin. This phrase, their due reward, that they would receive their due reward. We recognize this reality and sing about it today that the due reward that we deserve is judgment and that judgment has fallen on Christ. For those who believe, for those who trust that provision, for those who receive it willingly, Jesus' death pays the judgment that we deserve. His death is in our place as the sacrificial Lamb of God. And that message is there not to be purchased. Not to be gained by the family into which you are born. But to be received by faith. And so David is just talking reality here. And he's realizing that there is a judgment against those who work evil instead of receiving the forgiveness and the grace of God. Where are you today? Where are you in that relationship? You've only got two options, to live in rebellion against God, doing what is sinful and wicked against Him, or receiving His mercy and grace, which leads you, by His grace, to live righteously. It's not do wickedly or do righteously. It's do wickedly or receive His mercy. And once receiving His mercy, once trusting in Christ as our substitute sacrifice for sin, 
we then live out righteous deeds in response. I don't think David is off track with that. It's not all filled out and understood here. But on this side of the cross, we do not pray for God's mercy as something we deserve. We receive it as a gift and realize that eternal destinies stand in the balance as we respond to this truth. So having made his stand with God against the unrighteous, David transitions back to his, his own relationship with the Lord. And we find here thirdly that we must learn to praise God as our sole deliverer. Praying earnestly and persistently for His singular aid, standing with Him against the evil of this world, and then learning to praise God as our soul deliverer. I think that purposely goes together with He's not listening. He seems deaf, or at least I'm concerned that He not answer, and yet at the same time, here's the skill, the discipline of it, to keep singing to keep praising, to keep thinking about what He has done. And I think we see this, first of all, personally in verses 6 and 7 for the psalmist, where he says, Blessed be the Lord, for He has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. I cannot say this with other certainty, but it seems that David finds himself pleading with God to deliver, praying persistently that God will hear his cry, and that he counsels his soul then by thinking back to what God has done in the past. And if that's not precisely what's happening here in this psalm, it's happening in other psalms. But I think that's what he's saying here somewhat subtly, and the tenses of the verbs are at issue. But I think what he's saying is, I'm going to keep seeking you when you seem deaf, but I'm going to remember who you are and what you've done in the past. I bless you, for you have heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. I pray now, knowing how many times, God, you've delivered me by your grace. You have heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. And this pushes David into a glorious rehearsal of God's attributes. Who is the God that he's coming to? Who is the God that he's trusting? Even if God is not answering right now, who does he know him to be? Verse 7, the Lord is my strength offensive, and my shield, defensive. In my heart, in Him, my heart trusts, and I am helped. He is trustworthy. He is my aid. My heart exalts. He brings joy to the soul, and with my song, I give thanks to Him for who He is. This is the worship of of the believer knowing who God is and what He has done in faith, banking on that even when things are dark right now. Even when He doesn't seem to be delivering, He's a deliverer. We see His faith being worked out here because so often what we're tempted to do is say, God doesn't care. God is weak. He's on vacation. He's interested in other people. He doesn't care about me. We begin to rehearse these negative concepts about God who isn't really God, it's just idols of our mind. What David shows us here is the skill of one who finds himself in this trial, in this difficult spot, and he says, keep rehearsing who you know God is. Think about what He's done. Think about His saving grace through the ages. A good skill in this, a discipline in this that's been helpful to me is 
to just rehearse God's saving works through the ages. Just start back at the fall of the garden and think in your mind what God has done to save His people and bring it up to the cross and bring it up to your own day. What has God done? That's who He is. He's not answering me right now. I don't rewrite His attributes and character. I rehearse who He is and what He's done. Another thing that's so helpful to this end is what we're doing here today to gather with God's people and to sing songs of praise to Him. Songs and poetry that's been written and readings that we even recite together where we remind ourselves of who the Lord is. What happened this morning is we were singing this sermon. It was beautiful and sanctifying to us as God's people. And we need to revel in and recognize the significance of gathering as His people and singing these kinds of praises. That He is a God of mercy. That He is our strength. He is our shield. In Him we can trust. He is our help and He is our song. I was in a conversation with a woman whose husband had been severely injured. A life-changing injury. And somebody rightly, lovingly asked her, have you gotten back to church since this happened? And her answer just made me so sad. She said, no, I can't go to church. I cry during the singing. I, just, I wanted to just take her and say, what are you thinking? It's where you need to be. You should be crying during the songs. It's a hospital. It's where we find balm for our soul. We gather as God's people and people have put together the songs that we're going to sing and the truths that are there as the sweet-tuned church lifts those praises to God. You need to be there crying. I'm doing a bit more crying during singing right now. As I think of my father and his passing. That's good. Or cross my mind and not go to church and not sing the praises of God. It's this is where I'll be ministered to and with and among others. Oh, what a privilege is ours to cry as we sing, to cry tears of joy, to cry tears of sorrow, to work that out in assembly as we keep coming back and saying, this is who God is. We sang of it in that last song. Death is not the victor. There is a healing balm to our soul as we consider these truths of God that He has defeated death through resurrection. And there's a balm. David sings these praises. And I think I'm on track in saying these things because notice where he goes now in verse 8. He takes what is personal and he moves to the corporate As he says in verse 8, the Lord is the strength of His people. He is the saving refuge of His anointed. His anointed, a reference to David the king, I think, here. But this designation is also certainly a prophetic pointer that will be fulfilled by David's greater son. The Father will save Messiah. It doesn't save Messiah from his sin. But He rescues him for, through, out of his mission to redeem a people for his name. 
And in verse 9, David expands on the theme of salvation as he exalts, Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. This is who you are. Do this. We notice the lost in verses 3 through 5, the workers of wickedness, those who raise their works up in the face of God and defy His works. That's where we're all born. That's where we all are by our natural bent. But here we come in verse 9 to the rescue where we find in God one who shepherds our soul. One who, so to speak, takes the lamb and puts the lamb over his shoulders, the feet forward, the body across the neck, and carries us. God rejoices to carry His people. Is He sometimes deaf? Does it seem? Does it seem sometimes that He's withdrawn? Are there times He doesn't answer our prayers immediately? Of course. But He's also a shepherd. Not a human shepherd who's busy somewhere else and can't attend to us but a divine shepherd who picks us up across the back of his neck and carries us. This is who he is. And we rejoice in that together as a community. So let's collect these attributes through the psalm. God is our rock. God is the ultimate judge. He is a source of mercy. He is a source of strength. Our God is our shield. He is trustworthy. He is our helper. He is our refuge. He is our Savior. He is our source of blessing. He is a shepherd who carries us forever, says David. And God may not be listening. You see how he handles that. It's not withdrawal. It's not bitterness. It's not running away. It's not redefining who God is on the basis of my experience. It's looking at how God has revealed Himself and who He is and rehearsing what I know to be true. What I know right now is it seems that He's not hearing. It seems that He doesn't care. But what I know about Him is truth. And I'm going to keep coming back to that truth time and time again, rehearsing who He is. What attacks are you facing from within today? What attacks are you facing from without? What antagonists, maybe from family, from friends, what disease, what trial, what place where you say, if God could just hear me, Let's remember who our God is. And I call you, as I call myself, run to Him. Run to Him, not away. He alone is your deliverer. Praise Him. He alone is the judge. Stand with Him. He alone is worthy of your earnest, persistent approach Pray to Him and praise Him in song. Why does He not always answer us? Why do we sit there like a little child in a car seat asking Him to hear? Why does a human being do that? We can fill in all kinds of answers. Why does God do that? I don't know. But what I know is I know His heart. I know who He is. I know that He is trustworthy and He is my rock. And so I keep coming back persistently seeking, asking, and knocking at the door of our great God.
who loves us infinitely. Sometimes it's inscrutable. Sometimes we can't give answers to it. What would you expect from any deep person but to confuse you now and then? Of course he does. But he's also trustworthy. And I just call us as a church to run to him, to go to him, to keep seeking him, knocking at his door alone. And by his grace, he will answer. In his time, in his way, with infinite wisdom, he will hear our cry. He will. Lord, we thank you that you do, you have. How many prayers we have offered to you that you have heard the cry of our heart. And we acknowledge as you instruct us here that there are times that you're answering in ways that we don't perceive. Forgive us where we judge you. Forgive us where we think wrong thoughts. But I pray that you steer our heart to approach you and embrace you as we know that you have approached and embraced us. Lord, for those who know not this beautiful relationship with you, this sometimes confusing, inscrutable, at times virtually inconceivable relationship that we have with you as a God who is deeper than us, whose ways are beyond our own ways. But all that aside, Lord, may those who know you not as Savior see the Savior dying paying the penalty of sin in the place of the sinner and giving life. And I pray that they'd run to him, not away from him. For those that are running away from you with their actions and their attitudes, their orientation in life, I pray that this message would stop them in their tracks. I pray that the recognition of who you are as our soul's delight, as the only song that we can ultimately sing with lasting joy and clear conscience, would draw them in. Lord, may we meet with you here in your presence and grow as your people. Answer this cry, we pray. And may we as a church be persistently knocking at your door in behalf of those who know not Christ as Savior. I pray that you'd hear the cry and that there would be fruit in this assembly. May we be interceding for those that suffer loss that is impossible for us to understand. For those that are struggling with pain and debility that is beyond our imagination. Lord, none of it's beyond you. And I pray that we would be pleading in one another's behalf to grow in Christ and to draw close in the midst of these trials. We lay these requests at your feet for the glory of your name, for the joy of your people, through Christ. Amen.